Let's turn to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy on page 1174 in your Bible. For the next few months, we're going to be in 1 and 2 Timothy. Uh, This type of literature has a very different feel from the Gospel of Mark. Mark and Paul are very different writers because they're writing for different purposes in different audiences. What we're reading in 1 and 2 Timothy are letters that Paul's written to his young protege in the ministry, a guy named Timothy. So they're named after the recipient. And I told a friend the other day that we were about to start studying 1 Timothy, and he said, why do you want to fight your people? Why do you want to upset people? And uh, I said, that's why we're studying it over the summer. Uh, And he's right, there are some hot spots in 1 Timothy. There's some hot spots that we'll come across in our study, uh, but they're hot spots for our sanctification and our love of the Lord. Um, But I find these letters to be incredibly relevant, even important for our church. Over the past few years, um, this will come as no surprise to you, we've said goodbye to a lot of pastoral leaders. We've said goodbye to a lot of lay leaders in our church, people who for gospel reasons have gone out to do God's work in different locations. And so as we settle into our new normal, First and Second Timothy are going to help focus us on those things that are most important as a church. You see, South Shore Baptist Church, we don't exist to maintain status quo. We're not preservationists. We're not some quaint chapel in a meadow holding hands and singing a song together. We are a family in an outpost engaged actively in warfare for the sake of the souls of men and women and boys and girls. We've got to do that work together. And so it's natural for us. The, the gospel produces in every church, every believer, this sort of outward focus to reach the lost, to build up the saved. First and Second Timothy, uh, they help serve as a rudder to keep us focused on the work God has given us to do and doing it in the way God wants us to do it. Now, I've given you this info sheet on 1 Timothy. I'd encourage you to take a look at it later on. Maybe just keep it in your Bible so you can refer back to it uh, from Sunday to Sunday or time to time in your own personal study. Uh, Giving you a few resources. Uh, There's a lot of great resources on 1 Timothy. But if you wanted to do some more study on your own, I recommended a few books there that could be helpful. And then also a great activity on the back of the page. I gave you some memory verses. And uh, uh, Busby girls don't know this yet, but we're going to learn these as a family at our dinner table. I'd encourage you to do the same thing, uh, to commit some of these verses to memory. Or if you find others that you like or that resonate with you, uh, feel free to do that as well. So, First Timothy, here we go. Uh, the year was 1325. It was Italy. And there was a war. Two regions in Italy went to war against each other in this brief battle, uh, Bologna and Modena. They were constantly at each other's throats because the people of Bologna backed the Pope, but the people of Modena backed the Holy Roman Emperor. And one day, some soldiers from Modena snuck into uh, Bologna and they stole an oak bucket from the community water well. And that was just a step too far for the good people of Bologna. It's time to go to war. They amassed an army, 30,000 troops, to go get their bucket back. People of Modena could only amass 7,000 troops. And they met in warfare 
And wouldn't you know, those 7,000 soldiers from Modena, they kicked some Bolognese tail. 2,000 people died in a battle over a bucket. And Modena could say, hey, we, we kept the bucket. We've got it. And in fact, there is a bucket still on display in that region that's purported to be the very bucket that these two regions went to battle over. Never mind they lost 2,000 people. They got a bucket. Look, the job of the rulers in Bologna, in Modena, was not to defend buckets, but to take care of her citizens. And when those in leadership lose sight of what's most important and instead get lost in non-essentials, the results can be devastating. That's true for 14th century Italy, and it's always been true for the Lord's church. There was a time that the church in the city of Ephesus lost its way, and there was a real human toll as a result. The church in Ephesus was adrift in unbiblical nonsense for many years, but the church's founder, the Apostle Paul, would not let them go without a fight. And that fight was led by his young ministry protege and partner, a young man named Timothy, whom Paul placed in charge of the church in Ephesus in order to straighten it out. Now, we're not studying 1 Timothy because we are a one-to-one comparison between South Shore Baptist and the church at Ephesus. That's not the motivation here. But we need this letter to guide us. Like I said, it's like a rudder that keeps us focused on the work of God in the way of God. So my goal today is for us to launch into this study by uncovering the problem in Ephesus. If we're going to read 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy correctly, we've got to know just at a baseline level, what's the reason for Paul's letter? What's the problem that motivates this response? I want to uncover that problem. It's a problem that lands far too close to home, and if unaddressed by the modern church or by us modern believers, it's going to result in real damage. I want you to follow along with me as I read 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Here's how we're going to approach this text today. We're going to approach it in a Q&A format. I'll give the Q and I'll give the A. Uh, we've got three questions we want to ask of the text. I want to encourage you to take some good notes. Uh, and our goal today is to identify not just the problem in the church, but God's solution for this problem as well. The first question we want to ask of the text is this. What is the problem in Ephesus? What's the problem at the church in Ephesus? And the answer is this. It is a Scripture-mutilating, relativistic 
legalism. That's a lot of syllables. Scripture mutilating, relativistic legalism. I think oftentimes when we think about legalism, we immediately go to Pharisees uh, who strictly enforced every law in the Old Testament, uh, reject Christ and the grace that comes through Him. But this is a different brand of legalism found in Ephesus. It has a hint of Scripture. They take the Scriptures and they mutilate it. They change it. Uh, It's relativistic in that the teachers who are peddling it are just kind of making things up on the fly. There's just a bit of this loosey-goosey weirdness to it. But make no mistake, it is legalism. It still lays on people a burden of laws and regulations to decide who's in and who's out. Where do we get this? Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. Paul says this to Timothy. He says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. So what do we need to know about this problem, this legalism? First thing we have to know is that these false teachers are coming from within the church at Ephesus. It's not like they are these nefarious characters floating in from the outside. They're people who are a part of the church there in the city. Write this reference down in your notes, please. Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30. Acts 20, 29 and 30. Here we have a record of Paul's final face-to-face with the elders from the church in Ephesus. Paul's traveling back to Jerusalem. He summons the elders, calls them to meet him up in a different location. And in Acts chapter 20, we have a record of this emotional goodbye between Paul and these elders. It's a really beautiful passage of Scripture. But within his farewell to the Ephesian elders, Paul gives them a warning. And here's what he says, Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30. He says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So those savage wolves will arise from within to distort the truth, to draw people away after them. If you fast forward to 1 Timothy chapter 1, what Paul warned of has come true. So these false teachers aren't scoundrels coming in from the outside to infiltrate. They're from within the church. They have names that are known. They have history in that place. They probably have families in the church. They probably have respect in this type of social authority. They're not shadowy characters with evil laughs and rub their hands together like this. (laughs) It's people they worship next to every single week. They're known, they're present, in ways they're like Timothy, but they are leading people away from the gospel as if they were ravenous wolves. What are they teaching that's so bad? Well, the whole letter shines light on the content of their teaching. Um, But just here in verse 4, Paul references one aspect of it. He says their false teaching involved myths and endless genealogies. So by myth... Paul's referring to uh, imaginative stories without any anchor in the truth of Scripture. Uh, Sort of this um, fake authoritarian teaching that really doesn't 
reveal or speak or come from Scripture in any way. Endless genealogies, perhaps a desire to compare which streams of tradition you belong to in order to assess whether you're really in or out. I come from this line of teachers. My ancestry comes from this one. That means I'm in just because of my family. Now, it's probably worth pointing out how persistent these false teachers were. Remember, Paul had previously left Timothy in Ephesus to deal with the problem, yet it continued. This is going on for multiple years now. These teachers are entrenched. They are anchored. This was not an easy fight for Timothy or Paul. The problem in Ephesus with their false teachers is far more contemporary than you and I might realize. Especially as evangelicals who are in love with the Bible, we are especially susceptible to legalism and pointless controversies. Again, we can't lose sight of the fact that the false teachers in Ephesus were word people. They were using Scripture. They were using it wrong. They were mutilating it. But they weren't just out and out rejecting the gospel. They weren't coming in and saying, explicitly saying, Jesus is bad. You don't need Jesus. You just need to follow the Ten Commandments. It wasn't that cut and dry. There's a blend of the Bible, a blend of social authority with the stories they made up and the things they, t- they said that wooed people away from faith in Christ and wooed them to a sick legalism. And it happens in church life in the most subtle yet disastrous ways. Let me give you an example from my distant past uh, of how legalism snuck into the church undetected. Um, if I've told this story before, appreciate it if you just smile and nod like it's the first time. Once upon a time, <laughs> in a different church, in a different state. It was the week of vacation Bible school, and uh, we had a lot of volunteers from our student ministry who were helping out with vacation Bible school during the day. A lot of junior high boys and high school boys, and we were pumped about it. These kids could be home sleeping until noon and waking up with slobber on their face just to play video games and call it good. But they were out of bed early every morning to come to the church and to volunteer uh, to help out with our kiddos. Um, But we had this one particular adult who was having a fit because the boys were wearing their hats in the church. So when she brought her complaint to me, I asked her why this was such an issue. And she said it's because wearing hats in the church is it's disrespectful to the Lord And you shouldn't wear a hat in a house of worship. Uh, I saw the situation very, very different from her. I I told her, look, we should be praising these boys for giving their time to volunteer. We should recognize it's summer. We should recognize they're in and out of the church. It's a part of their VBS rotation. They're in for a bit. They're out. They're in and out all over the place. And so uh, I know this is an important cultural issue in our church then, so we, if, if it's Sunday morning, we'll ask them to take their hats off so they're not a distraction in worship, but just for Vacation Bible School, we're, we're going to praise them, we're not going to enforce that sort of rule. Uh, she responded by threatening me with physical violence and calling my wife a cuss word. <laughs> they don't tell you that's going to happen when you go to seminary. Apparently, the church is off-limit for hats, but not vile personal attacks. And that's the insanity of legalism. Man-made rules for reverence 
always go the way of legalism. Always. Our man-made rules don't require faith in Jesus to be met. They don't reflect faith in Jesus. Those boys could take off their hats, but their hearts would still be far from God. And what have we accomplished? What does God want with a hatless hellion? What's He going to say to that boy? Well done, my good and hatless servant. That's what legalism does. It's duties without heart. It's actions without allegiance. It's religion without redemption. Look, my point this morning has nothing to do with hats. I don't want to engage in a conversation or email exchange later about whether hats belong in the worship service or not. That's not the point. The point is man-made rules crush people. They destroy the Gospel. People are not saved by them only by the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't have to say amen. I know I'm right. This is the way legalism goes. It destroys people. It's a problem in the ancient church and it can still be a problem in the modern church for real. It is far more clever than you realize. Far more present than we would begin to understand. This is a situation that hits home. What's the problem? It's this grotesque legalism. What does that problem do to the church? That's the second question we want to wrestle with this morning. What's the result of that legalism in the life of the church? Three answers from verses 4 through 7. It derails the work of God, produces a people who lack love for one another, and it leaves us with foolish teachers who lead the church to wallow in stupidity. So let's look at these verses together. Paul's named the problem, these false teachers. Here's the description of what their work produces. First, it produces a church that is derailed in the work God has given it to do. Look at verse 4, the end of verse 4. Paul says, Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. What are the such things that Paul's referring to here. It's the false teachings, right? They, they result in controversial speculations. Your Bible, your translation might just say the word speculations, or it might say empty speculations. Uh, these are all attempts to translate a really beefy Greek word, and all of those translations are on the money. Empty, controversial speculations. That's the result of this false teaching in the church at Ephesus. Uh, these empty speculations, they do not advance God's work, which is by faith. So rather than having conversations that point people to faith in God, the conversations in the church at that time were leading people away from faith and miring them in utter, pointless minutia and nonsense. It derails the work of God, takes us away from calling people to faith. Another result of this legalism is that it lacks love. Look at verse 5. Paul says the goal of this command is love. Which command is Paul talking about when he says the goal of this command? He's referencing his command to Timothy to fix the false teaching. That command. Paul's goal in giving that command to Timothy is love. It's love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So when a church has the gospel at the center, one visible measurement you can see is love. 
How the people care for each other, treat each other. Love is an outward action towards each other. Of course, it's also outward actions towards God. But what Paul has in mind here is the way we care for and treat one another. Where do you think Paul gets this idea that followers of Jesus should be marked by love? My guess is he got it from Jesus who in John chapter 13, verse 35 said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you, say the word, love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Outward, visible, measurable manifestations of the gospel as we serve one another in the way Christ has served us. And where does that sort of love come from? Paul tells us in the middle of verse 5. It comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. A pure heart, what's that? How does one get a pure heart in God's eyes? God gives it to you. A pure heart is a sign of true conversion. What about a good conscience? Where does that come from? What is that? It's, it's a mind that's transformed by the gospel that leads us into these right acts. Sincere faith. What is that? It's active trust in God. So where, if I'm going to love my brothers and sisters in the faith family, where does that come from? How do I do that? It comes from true conversion, a changed heart. It comes from a transformed mind and an active faith in God. And the results, the results of that changed heart, transformed mind, faith in God, the results are serving one another in the way Christ served us, laid His life down for us. Now, because these false teachers were pulling people away from that towards empty speculations, the church in Ephesus lacked love. This was a really serious accusation. In fact, it shows up again later in the Bible. Let me give you another reference to write down in your notes. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We have a copy of a letter to the church in Ephesus. That letter is written down by the Apostle John, but it is given by the glorified Christ. And in his letter to the church at Ephesus, Jesus has some praise for the church. There's some things they do well. But in Revelation 2, 4, Jesus says this, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. We can't love each other when we forsake our first love. A lack of love was a problem in the church at Ephesus. It's a terrifying thing to hear Jesus say, you've forsaken your first love. But churches and Christians who lose the gospel have lost their love. Third result of this false teaching is what I've called foolish teachers. Look at verses 6 and 7. Paul writes, some have departed from thee. Some have departed from pure heart, good conscience, faith in God. These false teachers have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. I love Paul's bluntness here. These false teachers, they, they want to be teachers, but they just they don't have a clue what they're saying. These false teachers fit the description of often wrong, but never in doubt, right? I got something to say. I'm not sure where it's coming from. I'm going to say it with confidence and just make you believe that I got it right. Just like reading Nehemiah chapter 11. I'm going to say these names with confidence. 
And he did great. Uh, and, but I'm just going to plow through. It doesn't matter if it's right as long as I say it with confidence. What's the result, the impact of legalistic false teaching in Ephesus? Derails the work of God, lacks love, teachers without wisdom. A church that doesn't do the work of God, which is by faith. Do you know what that church is not doing? It's not sharing the gospel, and it's not seeing people saved. A church that lacks love. You know what it's not doing? It, it doesn't have saved people, Christians in it, who are caring for each other. A church that's filled with foolish teachers. You know, you know what that church does? They gather on a weekly basis for nonsense. No church can say this. We believe the gospel, but people are not saved through us. We do not love each other, and we love to teach nonsense. Th- those two don't go together. Belief in the gospel. And these things do not coexist. In fact, just the opposite would be true. If you were to take these characteristics and spin them to the positive, what you will find are measurable metrics for the health of any church. We believe the gospel and the lost are saved. We expect it. We share the story with boldness and gladness and joy in the power of the Holy Spirit. We expect the lost to be saved even in the rocky spiritual soil of the South Shore. We speak the Gospel and we expect God to honor that because He's told us He will. We see it. We see people saved. Our church doesn't grow by transfer growth primarily. It is primarily by the dead coming to life in faith in Jesus Christ. That's a visible, measurable metric. We're a church that loves each other. We believe the gospel, and because Christ laid down His life, it informs the way we care for one another. I put the needs of others before my own. My preferences in all manner of church life take a back seat for the advancement of the gospel and the love of my brothers and sisters. And if my friend lacks food, I give them mine. And if I've got two coats, I'm giving them one. Whatever they need, the answer for me is yes, because this is how Christ has loved me. And I don't gather to hear nonsense from teachers. We want the gospel planted in us, sown in us, cultivated in us. That's why I devour the Bible on my own time. That's why I gather with brothers and sisters together so that we can read what God has done, study it, and be transformed by the speaking voice of God in our lives. We can apply this metric to the church. You know, we can also apply it to our individual lives as well. You may not have the best public witness. You may not be someone who shares your faith with any bit of regularity. It doesn't necessarily mean it's because you are lost in legalism. There's a spiritual problem there. There's a lack of spiritual health. If you're not someone who's loving your brothers and sisters in acts of service, there's a lack of spiritual health. If you're someone that's lost in utter nonsense, there's a lack of spiritual health. But when I'm speaking the gospel, when I'm loving my brothers and sisters, when I'm immersing myself in the Word of God, then I find the life, the abundant life that Jesus died to give me. Evangelism, acts of love, wisdom, these are the fruit of holiness for churches and individual believers. One last question we would ask of the text this morning. What's the solution? we got a problem. We know what it looks like. We can identify it clearly. What's the solution? Very quickly, the solution is 
the apostolic gospel given to the church. That word apostolic can be a little wonky sometimes. Here's what I mean. The gospel that Jesus gave to the apostles that they in turn have delivered to the church. Here's where this comes from in Paul's letter. Verses 1 and 2. Saved it for the end. Verses 1 and 2, look at it with me. It's just Paul's greeting. And you might read it and think, eh, not much here. But I'm telling you, Paul comes out of the gate swinging. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He has an office. He's flashing his badge. What right do I have to give this instruction to Timothy and also this instruction to the entire church at Ephesus? I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm not Paul the tent maker. Not Paul the former felon. I'm Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ. If he's an apostle, that means he's had this face-to-face encounter with Jesus and the message he has to give to the church is a message he has been entrusted with by Jesus Christ. He puts his authority on display from the very beginning. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Again, he's taken the eyes of the church, focusing them on Jesus. Focusing them on God, the source of our salvation. Paul's commissioned by God our Savior, Jesus Christ our hope, to do the work he has to do. And in verse 2, he says he's writing to whom? To Timothy, my true son in the faith. By contrast to those nonsense teachers who are lost in myths and genealogies and empty speculations, this letter is to Timothy, my true son in the faith. It's Timothy's faith in Christ that makes him a true son, not this other nonsense. And then Paul greets Timothy with grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those three words are evidences of a gospel church. People who, are, who experience and practice grace, mercy, and peace. Paul's not being subtle. He's fighting a fight. And with the first stroke of his pen, he makes it clear where the solution to the problem lies. That solution is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, given to the apostles and then handed on to the church. Do you know what's better than venomous legalism? The gospel of Jesus Christ is. The gospel says, you've broken every rule, but Jesus has fulfilled all the rules, and He will take your punishment and give you His own reward if you'll trust in Him. So the problem in Ephesus and the problem in us is solved by the love of Jesus that took Him to the cross. Legalism says these rules are the way you win God's favor, but the Gospel says this cross is the proof that you are loved by God. Have you ever been crushed by legalism? Have you ever had rules heaped on you, been crushed by guilt and condescension, even by those in authority? The Gospel of Jesus Christ sets you free from that. It lifts you. It tells you you're loved. And there's a better way. The way of Jesus. So when legalism is the problem, how can we know? That's what Paul's given us in these opening words to his letter to Timothy. Well, that legalism is evidenced by the death of evangelism in the church, by a lack of love among believers, by teachers without wisdom or knowledge, and the glorious antidote 
is a life of faith in Jesus who died and rose again. It's common for people who, who are not Christians to think that their morality or their good deeds will set them right with God. But doesn't Paul destroy that line of thinking this morning? Doesn't he call you to something true and better? Friend, my prayer for you is that today you'd put your faith in Jesus and you would be a true daughter or a true son of his. And Christian, I want to challenge you to take action against the shadows of legalism that may linger in your life. I want to give you a really practical challenge. I hope you didn't put away your note page just yet because I've got a few things I want you to write down. Here's my challenge to you this week. Now, real quick, here's where you might say, Busby, you just told us legalism's bad, and now you're giving us these things to do. That's, that's, this is not so that you might be saved. <laughs> this is so that you might repent from sin. This is so that you might live in the life of faith God has given you. So I'm using those three problems we identified, those three metrics we identified earlier to guide us in our own personal responses to the start of this letter so that we set our hearts in the right direction. Have you been saved? Have you experienced the glory of the gospel? Have you been forgiven for your sin, promised new life, set on a new path with Christ, the Holy Spirit in you, guiding you and directing you? then this is what that life might look like. If you find yourself trapped in legalism in various ways, then this can be an antidote to that. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. First, in the next two days, I want to encourage you to pursue a Bible reading goal. You set the goal. I'm thinking of, like, you say, if you're not a regular Bible reader, you set a goal for the next week. I want to read my Bible on this many days. Four days out of the week. Especially if you're not a Bible reader, I want you to set a goal that's achievable and attainable. And I want you to get your nose in the Bible. And it doesn't matter where you read or what you read. I would encourage you maybe if you're brand new to reading the Bible, you could start in the Gospel of John and you read John chapter 1 and you're going you're to see something about Jesus that will just blow your mind. But set a goal for yourself. I'm going to read my Bible this many days this week, this week. I give you two days so you can, you hear it today, you think about it tomorrow, boom, Tuesday, you're off and running. Well, however you want to do it, you can, I'm not being legalistic here, however you want to shape it, you can shape it, but set a goal and get yourself in the Word of God. Contrary to that would be getting lost in mindless, pointless teachers. Get yourself in front of the living Word of God. Next. In the next week, I want you to look and commit to lovingly serve another person. Who that is, what that looks like, I'm going to let you and Jesus figure that out. But over the course of this next week, between now and next Sunday, next Sunday you should be able to roll in and say, and this week I looked for this opportunity and here's what the Lord gave me. I was able to do this thing. It may not be huge. It may not be worthy of a headline. But to that person, it's the visible manifestation of the love of Jesus Christ to them. Could you love someone in the next week? And over the next two weeks, here's the challenge. I want to challenge you to have a gospel conversation with someone. And you may not be a bold witness. You may not be uh, super jazzed about talking to people about Jesus. Just all these fears come up. What if I mess it up? What if I ask a question I can't answer? What if my head explodes? All those things, I get it. 
But God the Holy Spirit is in you for this very purpose. Christian, you are far more powerful in Christ than you realize. And it's not up to you to answer every question. The only way you lose is if you don't share. It's the only way you lose. If you share and they believe, you win. If you share and they say, I'm going to think about it, you win. You've been faithful. You've planted the seed. If you share and they insult you, Jesus says you are blessed. You win. If you don't share, you lose every time. In the next two weeks, could you have a gospel conversation with someone? Inject faith into some conversation you're having? These three things would be reversals of the problems Paul's identified from this legalism. We're going to get ourselves in front of wisdom and truth. We're going to get ourselves active in loving one another. We're going to get ourselves active in the work of God, sharing the gospel with people around us. My encouragement to us this morning is Paul's encouragement that you and I would live as true sons and daughters of faith. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your help this morning as we've launched into this new study. It's a big shift for us going from Mark's gospel to Paul's letters, but it's a glad shift. From the beginning, Paul comes out so direct, and I think that's what I need, that's what we need individually and as a church. We need to be confronted really with the horrors and the personal cost of this brand of legalism. So I'm grateful for a salvation that is by faith. I'm grateful for a Savior who came and died and rose again. I'm grateful that our way to you is not through man-made rules and regulations, but rather you made the way. You came to us. Thank you for this kind of salvation. God, I pray for my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior that we could say of them what Paul said of Timothy, that they are true sons in the faith, true daughters in the faith. Lord, let them believe in the one who took away those regulations, fulfilled the law, that they might be saved by your grace through their faith in you. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters individually, corporately. Holy Spirit, would you press in conviction that we would not walk in the way of legalism, confusing that for holiness in any way. Let us feast on your word. Let us flourish as we love one another. Give us boldness as we share our faith, that we would do the work of God, which is by faith. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.